Well, in here, since January, if, if you've been with us for a while, you've been hearing me say this. We've been in a series called Conversations with Jesus, where we've been looking at various conversations that Jesus had with men and women uh, in the Gospel of John. And uh, if you were here last week, you know that we finished the Gospel of John. So why am I still talking about conversations with Jesus? Um, and there's a, there's a hint there on the, on the slide. A few weeks ago, one of our members uh, expressed to me his disappointment that uh, John didn't cover the ascension. Uh, something that is really, really important. And, uh, you know, I mean, he wasn't asking John to redo it or anything like that, but, but it's not there, and I, I wish we could have talked about the ascension. And as I thought about it, I decided he was right. Um, so this morning, I'm going to cheat a little. Uh, we're going to turn the page from the last chapter of John's Gospel to the first page of Acts and... I promise this will be the last sermon in this series. So some of you are like, hallelujah. But others of you are like, oh, I'm sad to see this series go. Anyway, as we, as we go through this passage today, I'll have the verses up on the screen. And of course, you can follow along that way. Uh, if you'd like to follow along in a paper Bible and you don't have one with you this morning, our ushers are coming down the aisle just now. And if you'll just signal them somehow, they'd be happy to put uh, a Bible in your hand. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take this one uh, with you as a gift uh, from us. Uh, I'm going to invite you all to turn to Acts chapter 1 now. That's on page 874 of the Bibles that the ushers just handed out. Uh, So Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Um, Acts is written, by the way, it's not mentioned here, but uh, is is written by Luke. So um, Luke says, I wrote the first account, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up. As they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, 
who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful uh, that through your Holy Spirit, uh, these conversations, these events were written down. We're grateful for our Bibles where we can uh, not only learn about these things, but even hear from you, uh, Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning as well. Give us ears, uh, minds to understand, hearts to receive, uh, and, and there at the core of our being, at our hearts, we pray that you would transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. The uh, Christian calendar or liturgical calendar uh, uh, was put together. It was designed to help believers remember significant events in the life of, of Jesus and in the life of the church. Uh, and even those of us who did not grow up in a liturgical tradition uh, are pretty aware of the high points anyway of the story of Jesus. So we celebrate the birth of Jesus at... Look how smart you all are. (laughs) We uh, remember Jesus' death on Good Friday, right? And then we celebrate that wonderful event, the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Uh, Sometimes we even celebrate Pentecost, that event which happened 50 days. That's where the word comes from 50 days after the resurrection when the promised Holy Spirit came on and and into the believers gathered in Jerusalem and empowered them to to go out and do what Jesus had commanded his followers to do. But I think that probably few of us uh, stop, pause, uh, 40 days after Easter to celebrate the Ascension. Uh, It happens on a Thursday. It's pretty easy for us to go right on with life, not giving the Ascension a second thought. And I would guess that that most of us uh, might not even know why we should give it a second thought. Is the Ascension really that big of a deal? And I want to suggest this morning... Um, like Larry did a couple of weeks ago, that it is a really, really big deal. And it makes an infinitely big difference in our lives. Uh, I, I think that most of us recognize that if we stopped at the birth of Jesus, we would have had this uh, wonderful representation of, of God in the flesh but we'd still be left in our sin, right? If we, if we stop at the cross, we'd have this incredible expression of love, Jesus laying down his life for his friends, but sin and death would still not have been conquered. Right? In the same way, if we uh, stop at the resurrection, if, if Jesus is raised from the dead on Easter, but doesn't ascend to the Father, we're left lacking. Uh, 
Tim Keller says that the ascension is the detonator that explodes who Jesus is and all Jesus says and does into a universal scope. The ascension, he says, takes who Jesus is and what Jesus said and did while he was on the earth and it releases it into the universe and into our lives. Uh, To understand why this is true, we're going to need to uh, start by talking about what the ascension is uh, before we can begin to understand what it means for us today. And I'm going to need you guys to think uh, this morning. So uh, if if you're going to get anything out of this this morning, I need you to, as our teachers used to say, put your thinking caps on, right? So let's start with the word ascension. Very simply, very literally, the word means to go up, right? Verse 9, Luke tells us that after Jesus said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. So this verse doesn't give us much help uh, in in understanding what happens. It, It could leave us thinking that Jesus was some kind of supernatural spaceman, you know, that, that just sort of levitated up or maybe he had a jet pack and, you know, up into, up into space, which would be really cool, but it doesn't help us out a lot in our, in our lives today. It wouldn't mean anything for living the life that, that we are commanded to live. Uh, in verse 11, the angels say that Jesus was taken up to heaven. Well, that's helpful. It doesn't specifically tell us what he's doing there, but it, but it gives us a general idea of where Jesus is right now, right? Thankfully, there are a number of other passages in the Bible that tell us very, very specifically where Jesus is. Uh, Jesus told Caiaphas in Matthew 26 that he would see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of of God. Uh, in Peter's famous sermon in Acts chapter 2, he says that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. In Romans 8, Paul says that Jesus is at the right hand of God doing what? Interceding for us. In Ephesians 1, Paul says again that God seated Jesus at his right hand and put absolutely everything in the universe under his authority. All of these passages, and and there are more, say that Jesus is seated at God's right hand on the throne in heaven. So when we're talking about the ascension of Jesus, we're not just talking about Jesus going away from earth. We're talking about him going to heaven. He's going to a place, and he's seated on the throne there uh, at the right hand of the Father. Now, the book of Hebrews has a lot to say about what Jesus is doing there, okay? And we're going to look at a few of those passages in a moment, but for now, I want to direct your attention to Hebrews 10, uh, verses 12 to 13. Here we read, But this man, Jesus Christ, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. So let me ask you, how does the writer of Hebrews describe Jesus? What is he? A man. 
He's a man. And this tells us something very important about Jesus in heaven. When when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a real physical resurrection. Uh, We've seen this, right? He he appeared to over 500 people during uh, the, the 40 days after his resurrection, and we're told that he walked and he talked and he ate. He retained his crucifixion scars. He could touch. He could be touched. And, like we learned last week, he could cook breakfast, which is cool, okay? And yet, his body was somehow different, too. He was able to appear and then disappear in an instant. And and locked doors didn't seem to be any problem for him entering or leaving a room. And then there was something about him uh, that had changed in a way that, that made it difficult at times for some of his closest followers even to recognize him. So what we know is that after his resurrection, Jesus had a physical body. At one point, uh, uh, one of the gospel writers says that the disciples thought he was a ghost. And he said, ghosts don't have bodies, do they? Come on, guys. Right? I'm always a little surprised when I talk to Christians who think that Jesus gave up his body when he went to heaven. Uh, A lot of people never have even considered that, but um, that's not supported in, in Scripture. Nothing in the Bible supports that. And in fact, there's a lot in the Bible that supports that he still has a physical body. Jesus didn't like unzip his, his body suit and, and ascend just in spirit to heaven. He has a physical body there. And that, that means, this might break your brains a little bit, but that means there is a human being sitting on the throne in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. How does that work? I don't know. (laughs) But I know that it is, okay? Uh, In a a moment, we're going to see that the the fact of Jesus' ongoing humanness, his his continued incarnation, if you want to say it that way, is critical to the work that he's doing right now, today, okay? So that's what the ascension of Jesus is. Jesus, in his body, went up to heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, let's see if we can understand what that means. Why is that important? So in verses 10 and 11 of Acts 1, Luke tells us that while the disciples were standing there, staring up into the sky as as Jesus went up, two angels appeared and said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? Some translations insert you knuckleheads, right? Because for 40 days, Jesus has been talking about this. They said, this same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So this same flesh and blood Jesus is going to come back and establish a new heaven, a new earth, where we, with our new bodies, bodies like Jesus, which is cool to think about, right? 
our new bodies will live and work and play and love God and love others the way humans were always intended to. At the end of Luke's gospel, when he tells the story of Jesus' ascension, he says that the disciples went back with great joy as they worshipped him. It strikes me that that's supposed to be our response to this truth of, of the ascension. So what about the ascension should fill us with joy? What about the ascension is supposed to just cause us to to well up in worship? I'm going to see if I can help us understand that, okay? Theologians uh, sometimes refer to something called the threefold office of Jesus uh, as the Messiah. It has a fancy Latin name that I don't... Munis triplex, I think, is what it is, something like that. It's a way of identifying three distinct roles that Jesus has as the Messiah. Uh, And I I taught through this a few years ago during the Advent season, but I'll just review it really quickly. So Messiah is a word that means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there are three distinct roles of anointed ones, Okay, people who were anointed. Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and kings were anointed. And so we're going we're gonna to look at each one of those and, and see how Jesus acted in that role during his earthly ministry, but also look at what happened uh, as a result of the ascension to those roles. So let's start with prophet. In the Old Testament, prophets were anointed to speak on behalf of God. And, and oftentimes they would back up uh, their message with some kind of miraculous sign. So some of the best-known prophets include Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Elijah and Daniel, Isaiah. Uh, uh, there's other lesser-known prophets, too, like Jonah and Micah and Zephaniah. Uh, three women are listed as prophets, Miriam, Deborah, and Huldah. But all of these people spoke God's words to God's people with authority that comes from God. And then Jesus comes along, right? And people immediately recognize him as a prophet. He doesn't teach like other teachers. His his teaching seems to be kind of from beyond the human realm of wisdom. And so people say he's a prophet. And we learned at the very beginning of John's gospel that Jesus wasn't just speaking on behalf of God like the Old Testament prophets did. He wasn't just relaying God's words to people. He was, in fact, the living word, the word of God made flesh and and came and and lived among us. The word is actually tabernacled among us. And the words Jesus spoke were backed up with many signs and wonders, all intended to show that he was the prophet above all other prophets. And then he leaves. What happens to his prophetic ministry now, right? Nobody was a prophet like Jesus. Nobody spoke with with the wisdom or authority that he did. No one had ever spoken truth in a way that liberated people. 
in a way that, that set them free. But now he's gone. Does that mean the prophetic ministry of Jesus just stops? Some people would say, well, we, we still have the Bible, right? Jesus speaks through the Bible, and that's true. But it's not the full scope of it. In verse 1, Luke says that in his first book, he wrote about what Jesus began to do and say. And Luke, I think, is implying that he's about to write in the book of Acts about what Jesus continues to do and say. What does that mean? I want to show you something in Ephesians 4. Uh, Paul is writing to the believers in Ephesus about how they were transformed by the gospel. And he contrasts them to some backsliding Christians. And he says, that is not how you learned about the Messiah, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, because the truth is in Jesus. Why am I pointing this out? Most translations add the preposition about. I've got it bolded in italics there. The King James doesn't do that. New American Standard doesn't do that. But most do. And they do it because they know something that maybe we don't think about when we read this. Jesus never went to Asia Minor. Jesus never went to Ephesus. And without that preposition, it it could sound like Paul is saying that the Ephesians directly heard Jesus and were taught by him. Well, up in Ephesians 2, 17, Paul says, Jesus himself came and preached to you. He never went there. What does Paul mean? Here's what... I think he means. As the message of Jesus, the message about Jesus is spoken by his followers everywhere around the world, Jesus himself is preaching through them and transforming lives. And so that is why in verse 8 of Acts 1, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, wouldn't have come if Jesus hadn't ascended, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Jesus' followers take on the prophetic ministry of Jesus. And they aren't just talking about him. He is actually speaking through them. It's crazy. And this is why Tim Keller says that the ascension detonates this explosion of prophetic ministry that is of universal proportions. Jesus' prophetic ministry has gone way beyond what it was when he walked on this earth. Way beyond. To put it in my dad's words, the ascension makes Jesus a way more better prophet if that makes sense, okay? So that's prophet. What about the office of priest? In the Old Testament, priests were anointed and they were anointed for for a task. They were anointed to uh, offer sacrifices and prayers on behalf of the people. So they also pronounced words of blessing over the people as they came out of the tabernacle uh, after offering the sacrifice. They were mediators 
between God and humans, okay? And it's pretty easy for us to see how Jesus' sacrifice on the cross provided this mediation. We have verses like 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. We have 1 Peter 2.24, which says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is our mediator. He is our priest. But you know, there's an aspect of Jesus' priestly role that was incomplete before the ascension. I don't mean by that that Jesus' death on the cross was not enough to pay for our sins. It was, but there was a part of the, the prescribed process for priests offering a sacrifice that hadn't been accomplished before the ascension. In the Old Testament, the high priest was supposed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year uh, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, to sprinkle blood, uh, blood of the the sacrifice, on the mercy seat that sat on the Ark of the Covenant. The Holy of Holies was the most sacred place of the tabernacle. It it symbolized the, the place that God's presence was. Okay, so that's Old Testament. More than any other book in the Bible, Hebrews teaches us about the effects of the ascension regarding Jesus as our priest. So in chapters 8 and 9 of Hebrews, we read that Jesus is now in the true or perfect tabernacle. Uh, He is in the literal presence of God. So where the Old Testament priests offered a sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement, Hebrews tells us that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all and that his blood is continually present in the true holy of holies, a a forever reminder that our sins have been paid for. Uh, The Old Testament priests, this is another aspect of, of the priesthood, had to be taken from among the people. They had to be able to re- represent um, the people um, as one of the people. Hebrews 5 uh, tells us this. It's a beautiful chapter. Uh, it also tells us there that Jesus is the ultimate example of a high priest who can relate to his people. Uh, Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was our great, is our great high priest who has been tempted in every way that we have been, and yet he never sinned. It goes on to say, because of that, we can always receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Wonderful. And none of that would be true without the ascension. Hebrews becomes this glorious theology of the high priestly role of Jesus. And obviously, I don't have time to go all the way through Hebrews this morning, but if you want to be encouraged, really encouraged about what Jesus is doing for you right now, today, you ought to read the book of Hebrews. 
It's really, really rich. So I've tried to show how Jesus' ascension um, magnifies, if we can say it that way, his uh, roles as prophet and priest. Let's look at what it does, uh, what the ascension uh, accomplishes for him as, as king. So during his earthly ministry, Jesus claimed that he was Messiah, the anointed king of the Jews, okay? That got him killed. And as we worked our way through John's gospel, we discovered that the king that the Jews were looking for was completely different than who King Jesus really was. They wanted a king in the order of earthly kings. They wanted a king who would overthrow their oppressors, uh, Rome and, and others. And Jesus said, my kingdom isn't like that. My kingdom isn't from here. It's, it's not made of the same stuff. Um, it, it's interesting that after three years and 40 days with Jesus, 40 days with Jesus specifically teaching them about the kingdom, we, we read that up in the first couple of verses of Acts 1. Uh, when we get down to verse 6, the disciples want to know if now is the time that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Is it happening now? You know, boy, you can hear him say to the Father, right? But Jesus' disciples are thinking way too small. Jesus has a much bigger kingdom in mind than that. His is a kingdom that is over all rulers and all authorities. It's It's a kingdom that is universal in scope. And again, only the ascension can accomplish that. Only when Jesus is seated on the throne in heaven at the right hand of God can his rule and reign extend to those proportions. It's it's the only way that it's possible. We see this in Ephesians 1, where we read, God exercised his power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to the church as head over all things. We see it in Philippians 2, where we read that God highly exalted him and gave Jesus the name that is above every name, So at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's that's all of them, right? Every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see it again in Revelation 5 where we read that there are a hundred million people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the throne. I don't know if the hundred million is a literal number or if John's mind is just blown as he sees this throng of people around the throne. It's like too many to count, right? 10,000 times 10,000. hundred million. And they're singing, John says, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. To the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, that's Jesus, be praise, honor, glory, and dominion or ruling power 
forever and ever. Oh! Showed a video a couple of weeks ago called That's My King. There he is again, right? Let me give you one more that I think is really cool. Uh, because the prophet Daniel has a, has a vision. God gives him this vision of heaven 600 years before Jesus' ascension. But what's cool is in this vision, Daniel is seeing from the perspective of heaven what the disciples are seeing as they look up. So, so it becomes 3D, right, if I can say it that way. Daniel 7, uh, beginning at verse 13, I saw one like a son of man coming up with the clouds of heaven. Sound familiar to what the disciples saw? He was going up. Daniel sees him coming up, right? And again, this, this is a flesh and blood description of, of Jesus. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him, and he was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Friends, we have a king in heaven who is in the process of subduing every evil rule and authority. And one day, King Jesus, in the flesh, is going to return on a cloud, the angel said, just the same way that he went and establish a physical, real kingdom on earth. He is going to bring heaven down to earth where, as John tells us in chapter 21 of Revelation, God's home will be among his... I love this passage. It's one of my favorites. God's home will be among his people and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. And I want to say once more, none of this would be possible without the ascension. Because without the ascension, Christ's work is incomplete. Without the ascension, there's this gaping hole in the story of the Messiah. Without the ascension, really important doctrines get twisted and and skewed. But if our doctrines don't find their way down into our practice, there's really no point in having those doctrines at all, is there? So what do we do? with the ascension. What, what might this week look like with a proper understanding of the ascension? I, I think there are two aspects that I want to just highlight for you as, as I close. The first is this. The ascension is incredibly personal. It's incredibly personal. The threefold office of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king isn't some impersonal doctrine that's, that's really handy to have in your back pocket in case you're playing Bible trivia. That's not its point, okay? It's deeply personal. 
as the, as the risen and ascended word of God, Jesus the prophet still speaks truth that sets people free. He's still doing it. I've seen it happen. You have too. We, we're seeing a miracle this week with, with one of our brothers here. That we got, a, we got a word that he's two hours away from going to heaven, and, and now he's not. He's up and around, and it's amazing. How does he do that? How does he, how does he speak in a way that still sets people free? Well, he, he does it through the, 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 the whispers of his spirit as he leads us. That's Jesus speaking. That's Jesus' prophetic word still speaking. Uh, that, that same spirit opens our minds to what Jesus is saying through the written word of God. If, if we will listen, we will, we will see that Jesus continues to speak to us today in deeply personal ways. So that's, that's the personal nature of the prophet. As our great high priest, Jesus has taken his once for all sacrifice into the holy of holies of heaven saying, my blood has been shed the price for their sins has been paid. And now we know that God sees us through the righteousness of Jesus. And Jesus says that continually for you and for me. Friends, that's deeply personal. As a result of paying for our sins, the Apostle Paul says that we are no longer slaves to sin. Do you know that we now have a choice where we once didn't? Hebrews tells us that our human high priest was tempted in every way that we are. That's pretty personal. When I think of the ways that I'm tempted, that's pretty personal. And yet he didn't sin. And that's what he wants to empower us to do, you to do, to live free from the bondage of sin. Some of us still live like we think we don't have a choice. We do. And here's some really great news. When we do sin, we have this great high priest who says we can boldly approach the throne of grace and receive mercy there. You see how personal his priesthood is? And, and this same high priest, the Bible says that he, he lives continually to intercede for us. He sits there at the right hand of the Father. And I hope that we know that sometimes he says, Abba, Father, right? So don't, I'm not, Dad, he needs help here, right? He intercedes for us. Every week I, I invite you to write down prayer requests on this card so that the staff and elders can pray for you. And I think that's important. But get this. Jesus himself is praying for you. For you. Jesus, the flesh and blood 
high priest sits next to God the Father praying for you. That's personal. And as our King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus is in the process of subduing all other powers and authorities. And Paul says in Ephesians 1 that he's doing that for the church. That's why he's doing it, for his church, for us. He's subduing all those powers and authorities for us. And part of what happens when we surrender to his kingship in our lives is we amazingly become part of his royal family. I wrote a song once that, it wasn't a very good song, but there was this one line in the song that I, that I still love. It, it says, I was once an orphan child, but now royal blood flows through this pauper's veins. I don't understand how that could be, but it is. And at least for me, that is deeply personal, Okay? The other thing is, though, it's incredibly, in fact, infinitely powerful. Uh, This truth of of the powerful, infinitely powerful aspect of Jesus' ascension is probably most easily seen in the passages we looked at where we saw that as king, Jesus has been given the name above every other name and his power is above every other power or authority. And one day, the fullness of his kingdom will be seen and acknowledged by everyone as they bow before him and declare that Jesus is the Lord. But we also see his infinite power as our ascended prophet. It's in the context of the ascended Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. It's in that context that the writer of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. When Jesus, the living and ascended word of God, speaks, it is powerful. So as we saw in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 2, whenever the message about Jesus is spoken to people who haven't yet believed in him, Jesus himself is speaking and it has the power to transform lives, to bring people from spiritual death into spiritual life. Danny Logan's going to talk to us more about this next week, about what happens when we speak that. And the infinite power of the ascended Jesus is is seen in his role as high priest as well, in heaven's holy of holies. As we talked about last week, as, as far as the east is from the west. That's far. That's how far he's removed our sins from us. The the earthly sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament were good for a year. They didn't have the power to deal with sin once and for all. 
But when Jesus, the, the Lamb of God, offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins and took his shed blood into heaven's holy of holies, he paid for the sins of every human who had ever lived or would ever live. It was enough. And he continues forever as our high priest. The power of his sacrifice is infinite, both in its effect and its duration. It is forever. I hope, friends, you're beginning to see how important the ascension is to our faith. I believe, I really believe this, if, if we could live in the reality of the ascended prophet, priest, and king who sits on the throne in heaven, our lives would be truly changed. We'd live differently. And part of that is because Jesus also calls us to take on a prophetic voice as we boldly speak truth about him. He he calls us a kingdom of priests. We are priests. We're not the high priest, but we're priests who represent God to people and people to God. We do that in prayer, right? And he calls us to live as part of his royal family, living by his kingdom principles everywhere we go. And when we do that, his kingdom is extended. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up now and lead us in one of the great ascension hymns of the church. Did you know we have ascension hymns? Uh, We usually sing this one at Easter, but it's not an Easter hymn. Uh, Sometimes we, we so intertwine Easter with the ascension that there's no distinction anymore, but there is a distinction, and this is a great ascension hymn. Just before we sing it, let me lead us in prayer. Jesus, thank you for being the prophet above all other prophets, for being the priest above all other priests, for being the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you that you rule and reign there seated on the throne in heaven. And thank you for our great hope that one day you will return in the flesh and bring your kingdom down here where we will enjoy you and one another forever. God will make his home with us. We will be his people in ways that we can't even fathom. Thank you for all of that. May it make a difference in our lives this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.